hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the, spirit, the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Pretty complicated, but we'll try and <laughs> we'll try and unpack that for you. Like I said, it's pretty much near four months since we last looked at this text, and so a short refresher is definitely in order before we get into today's work. So here goes. In verses one to three, we learned about how all believers are an epistle of Christ. And that word epistle is just a more sophisticated way of describing our, a letter. Our lives are therefore like a letter being written through God, through the Holy Spirit, to those around us who do not yet know Jesus. And it's saying, this is what life with God looks like. Well, that's hopefully what our letter to those around us says. Since our epistle is an actual thing, after all, it is our day-to-day -day real life, it has three dimensions. It has width. That means we must pass it on to those around us. It has depth because it changes us internally. And lastly, it has height because it is completely dependent on our connection with God. And there are, of course, challenges for each of us in these dimensions as we live out our daily lives. Then we dive a little verse deeper into verse 3 specifically to ask, who's your eyes are? And we spoke about how the Corinthian church was struggling with this problem of Judaizers. And these were people who forcefully, forcefully and quite wrongly sought to mix the works of the old covenant with the rituals and rules of the Jews. And they brought them in together with the freedom and grace of the new covenant. For example, by saying that Christians needed to be circumcised. And that problem didn't go away, unfortunately, because they are still at work today in much the same way. And in addition, we're also confronted by all kinds of other eyesers, dollarizers, funizers, and hobbyizers, to name a few. And these are things that we give our loyalty and passion to when they ought to belong only to God. Next, we looked at verses 4 to 6, and I began there by asking a question. I asked, do you think that you are big enough, good enough, sufficient enough to be an apostle of Christ? And that means that at all times you are his letter to the world, his letter to your friends and colleagues, the letter to the fellow who doesn't use his indicator at the roundabout, his letter to the person at the till in the supermarket who packs your bread under the five kilogram bag of potatoes. And we discovered the answer in our text. Fortunately, 
we are big enough, but only because God makes us so through his Holy Spirit. So we might summarize our progress to date as follows. God certainly wrote you as his letter to the world, but there are outside forces who would like to change the words to suit themselves. However, the pen that the Lord used was filled with indelible Holy Spirit ink so that providing that you don't deliberately cover up the words or try to refill the pen with patented Isa ink, no one can hide or dispute that message. And most importantly, that message is a completely new one. We can now get on with today's work, verses 7 to 11, but I think some decoding is going to be necessary because what we read here is in typically peculiar and convoluted Pauline language. So let's try to get on with that. The first thing to mention is we can't forget about what has been written before this section of text because it does lead directly into what we're talking about today. Remember that all our chapters and verses are actually human insertions that were just put there to help us find bits in the Bible and to, to link them together. And they don't necessarily divide things into discrete ideas. So what do we read back in, in verse 6? Our sufficiency is from God who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Verse 6 tells us that our working relationship with God, our service to him is only possible because he makes us sufficient. Strong enough, if you like, to do that work even when it is very difficult. But there's more here than that. The idea of serving God is by no means a new one that only, that only applies to modern believers. When Paul wrote this, of course, the Jews had already understood that their purpose was to serve God as his people, and they'd done so literally for thousands of years. And that was part of the pull of the Judaizers' message. Imagine that you were a Jew who'd converted to Christianity. You would have had this message of service drummed into you from a very early age, and it was highly organized. Do this, and this, and that, and this way on that day, wearing this and eating that. Don't do that because the Torah says you can't. You're a Jew, one of God's chosen people, and we are a peculiar people, and that's how we serve God. That's our identity. Do you see the difficulty if this has been the core of your character since you were born? And this is the whole reason this bit of Corinthians has been written. Through Paul's hand, God wanted anyone who read it to see how very, very radically things had changed from that. This wasn't Judaism plus a few new rules. This, this was completely wiping the board clean and starting again. Verse 6 speaks of a whole new ball game entirely whose outcome determines the destiny of the human spirit. Eternal life or eternal death. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. On our first reading, the text that we're going to look at seems pretty complicated. In fact, it's quite possible that you just want to skim over it and look for something a bit more inspirational. But in fact, it is, it is actually a very important bit of Scripture because there really isn't anywhere else in the Bible where there is such a clear comparison between the law and the gospel, the old covenant and the new. But we do need to have some stuff in our mind when we read it. 
It's very easy to fall into the old trap of law equals bad, bah humbug. Gospel equals good. Yay, we are saved. Too bad about those Old Testament guys. And that would be wrong because God gave us both. He gave us the law and the gospel. And his character is good through and through. There's no bad in him at all. So anything that he gives us has got to be the same. It will be very good. So the law is good. The law is very good. But the gospel is better. And with this idea in mind, you can see that Paul actually does honor both in what he writes here. And I'll have a few more things to say about this later. We'll also have to unpack some language because there's some possibly confusing stuff here that, that I've actually caused because of my earlier explanations. If you think back to how I said that we are God's epistles, an epistle is just a fancy kind of letter, and then you look here and you see how the word letter is used in verse 6, using phrases like, not of the letter, and the letter kills, you might be going, huh? How is it that being a letter for God is a good thing one minute, and then neck minute, it's not? Well, the answer is simple. They aren't the same thing at all, which is why the word epistle is used earlier. It's a translation of a completely different Greek word with a different meaning. So, what are we talking about here? You may have heard this phrase, keeping to the letter of the law. Yeah? And that means that somebody has applied exactly what is actually written in the law rather than the moral principles on which it is based. And it's usually not a flattering description, but its modern meaning is really not what I'm interested in here. What, I want to, what I'm interested in here, what I want to show is the link between letter and law. What letter and what law? Well, of course, by using the word letter here in verse 6, Paul is really referring to the written law of Moses. And we'll, that's a huge bit of work, but we'll summarize it by just talking about the Ten Commandments, which is where it all really comes from. And they were written on tablets of stone by God on Mount Sinai. And it's important for us to understand this because if you cast your eye over this text, you'll see how the imagery of that event is used again and again. So the whole purpose of this passage is to illuminate the huge difference between the law, the Ten Commandments, and the gospel, which is salvation through Jesus, so that those who enjoy the blessings of the gospel will clearly see that there is no need at all to go back to the law or any part of the law in order to have a living relationship with God. Judaizers, get lost, take road, footsack, get in behind, etc., etc., etc. Now that I've openly said that the law is behind us, I must immediately deal with an obvious question. If it is true that the law is no longer needed, then there is no requirement for a Christian to obey those Ten Commandments anymore. Right? Wrong. <coughs> Flashing red lights and annoying buzzer sounds. In Matthew 5, 17 to 20, we have Jesus' own words on this matter. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by any means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. 
Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I don't see there's any way or any need to make it any clearer. The Ten Commandments stand firm and will continue to do so for eternity. When I'd started to expand on that thought, I began to write that the Ten Commandments would stand as long as life on this earth continues. But then I realized that that isn't actually true because God is completely consistent. And so the rules he has given us, well, they won't ever change. However, we will change when he comes again to gather his children together to a new earth. We will no longer have the desire to disobey our Heavenly Father, but His law will still be the same. It just won't be needed. And I long for that day. I have one more thing to talk about before we look at the text proper, and it has to do with the correct view of God's law. I've already spoken about how Paul writes about the law being glorious, how he honors the law. But that's not how it's often seen by modern Christians. The law is bad. It leads to death. It condemns everybody who tries to live with it. It's terrible. It's scary. Thank goodness it's not my problem because I'm not an Old Testament guy. Well, those are the wrong way of looking at things. Paul has gotten it right, and so should we. The law must be glorious because it was given to us by God. If there is death and condemnation that comes from it, those things are to be laid at humans' feet. We have failed. We have condemned ourselves by our stubborn resistance to obey God. We are the terrible and scary things, and we are the problem, not the law. So here's a few thoughts about why the Lord is good and awesome and proper. Firstly, it was and is absolutely necessary to have the law, because if it wasn't there, how would we ever definitely know what is right and what is wrong? The law is not a reed in the moral wind. It is a fine steel post that is deeply rooted in bedrock. It doesn't move. If we grab onto it, we will always know for sure. Secondly, as a consequence of knowing the difference between right and wrong, through the law we learn so much about the character of God. He hasn't hidden himself, as some people say, inscrutable in the lofty heavens. No, he has revealed his person and nature in the law. So what does it say about him? It tells us that there is one God and one God only who is worthy of our adoration. It tells us that his heart is to save those who follow him. It tells us that he knows the value of rest. He loves family. He hates murder and theft and lust and lies. Are these things not good and glorious? Is God not good and glorious? And thirdly, the law brings us to the cross. You know, recently we were looking at the book of Galatians in our men's group on a Thursday night. And we came to this passage in chapter 3. I'm going to read from verse 19 on, but it's verses 23 and 24 that I particularly want to draw your attention to. What purpose then does the law serve? 
It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under God by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the Lord was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For me, these verses were a bit of a light bulb moment. Up till then, I'd always seen the law as necessary as a standard of absolute truth, like I've said. But it always, it always had this strongly condemnatory feel to it. It was, it was a scary thing. But here I see something different. Here the law is spoken of as a tutor. Perhaps you could say my judgment is clouded by the fact that I, I do have fond memories of many of my tutors. And so I hope that you too had the same positive experiences with most of your teachers at school as I did. So you understand where I'm coming from. And so from these verses I have this picture of the law in my mind, not as an angry man with a stick chasing me, but rather a, a gentle and firm director of my life moving me away from all the wrong influences and nudging me towards the right ones until I came to know Jesus as my Savior. Isn't that why in John 10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd? Isn't that what a shepherd does? And I hope you'll know too the bit at the end that's completely consistent with what we're reading about today. After faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor and that's just what we're reading about isn't it just a different metaphor but the same message once we are saved the effect of the law is no longer needed okay so we've got all of this information now how does this help us with the rest of our passage but if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing was glorious, what remains is much more glorious." What do we know about Moses? Moses was a man who enjoyed a very rare privilege. The book of Exodus records that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. What do you suppose that was like? I bet it was a bit more exciting than a latte at the Rutland. The term Lord that's used here in Exodus is that one that's always put in capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And when you see that, you know that what is meant here, this, this is Yahweh. 
God in all his fullness, Lord and creator. And there is no way that a human can meet the Lord in this way, in all his glory, and not be profoundly affected. And this was truly the case for Moses in a very spectacular way. God not only speaks to Moses, but he allows him to see his glory. Not the full measure, mind. Moses is stuck away in a rock and covered by God's hand and God passes by so that Moses gets to see his back and any more and Moses would undoubtedly have been toast. And after this we have the account of Moses receiving and writing out the Ten Commandments and he goes back to the Israelite camp and how is he greeted? Um, Moses, your face is shining bro, it's bright as... Folks, this is more than just a, an interesting Sunday school story. It really happened. A person like you and me really met God, whose immeasurable glory spilled over onto them in such a way that it caused their human face to emit a bright light. How did that even happen? How? Do you think that would be a remarkable encounter if you met such a person in real life? Do you? Would you tell your friends? Would you tell people who weren't your friends? <laughs> Thank you, Siri. <laughs> Back to the man with the glowing face. Where would you rate that meeting amongst all of your life experiences? Surely it would have to be at the top or very near the top of them all. But the experience does not end there. We cannot separate the message from the man because their source was the same. The Lord, God, Yahweh. If the face was glorious, so too were the facts. The law carved in stone in his hands. So this is what Paul is using as an illustration. Every Jew would be very familiar with the story. And Moses was held in extremely high esteem by all of them because of his role in the Exodus. So he says, if you think that was a big deal, a man who actually saw God, a man with some stones in his hands explaining and then enforcing the law, Granted, his face was shining and all that stuff, but he was still a man. Well, how much better than that do you think the Holy Spirit, God himself living inside you eternally, will be? And that's really the question at the heart of all this complicated language in these verses. I'm not going to try to unpack that for you. And it has a really, really obvious answer. Way better, extremely so, fantastically more awesome, inexplicably great. If that is the case, then why on earth would anyone ever consider choosing the man and the stones and the curse over the Holy Spirit and liberty? If that was the question Paul was asking the Corinthian church 2,000 years or so ago, has it changed? Is it still relevant today? Of course it is still relevant. 
those Judaizers have not gone away. There, there are still folk going around suggesting that you have to do this or that Jewish thing or you aren't a proper Christian. Rubbish! Don't go there. It gains you nothing at all towards salvation. By all means, study Jewish history. Dive deep into the Old Testament. Love the Jews. There are many lessons there for Christians and you will gain a deeper understanding of God's character and purposes. But don't get caught up in the shackles of the old when we can now live freely in the new. Christ has set us free at a great cost. Honor and celebrate that sacrifice by living under his lordship alone and none other. And there's a second way that Paul's message is still alive for us in the church today, and it's called legalism. Wear this, don't wear that. Sing this, don't sing that. Read this, don't read that. And the list goes on and on. Friends, the gospel is not like that. The gospel is all about the heart and never about the hair. If you ever attend a church where there's a list of rules as long as your arm and you aren't seen as a proper Christian if you don't obey every single one of them to the nth degree, then run away with purpose and vehemence. Run away. But run then to the gospel. Because in the arms of Christ, there is complete forgiveness and boundless love. If what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Embrace that much more glorious space. Reject the glory that came before it. Its time has passed. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it's impossible for us to find enough words or big enough words to praise you for what you have brought by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Its glory is all-surpassing. And you offer us that glory. How amazing is that? And so, Lord, I pray that we would open ourselves to it. That our bushel would not be hidden. Well, it shouldn't be hidden by the bushel. <laughs> and other people would see that light and come to it and know it too. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.